I'm not just not really that heavily into material goods. So I wasn't full of anticipation about it. I was just more, more interested in what the experience was going to be like when they got here. That said, they're pretty pleasing, you know, like they, there is something about well-made things that is appealing at a deeper level. And so above and beyond, like I say, I mean, I'm no expert, but to my, my eye tells me that this is a better quality product than I'm usually wearing. And I like the, the feel of that. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Say you need a new pair of jeans. There are tons of cheap ones that look great. They may not last long, but you'll only wear them a few times, and that doesn't bother you because two things. One, they don't cost very much, and two, you'll take them to a thrift shop, and you tell yourself others will benefit from getting to use them after I'm done with using them. You can also spend more on others. You know that they'll endure, but they cost more. Is the cost worth it? Or maybe it's a frying pan, shaving razor, sofa. J.B. McKinnon's upcoming book explores these questions. In our second episode, he shares his personal experience buying the durable jeans. It's easy to connect with him because we all face this decision all the time. It's a lot different to experiment and find out from experience compared to just talking. Let's hear how his experience went and explore the consequences of each of these choices. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with J.B. McKinnon. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. And good to have you back. Thank you. And it's been a little bit longer, and that's part of the... Well, let's take a step back, because I know what, I remember what you've done, and we've emailed, so I know that things have happened, but it's taken a little while. Can we go back to remember, before even what you did, do you remember what, what was the motivation? What was the feeling behind what you did? Well, what... What I did was was go out and buy a really expensive pair of jeans that are meant to sort of hold all the values that I might want in a pair of jeans or, or that I might want out of a pair of jeans that I can find today and that would last a long time. So the motivation for it, I guess, was that I find it fairly easy to do. You know, I've done a lot of different things. I ride my bike a lot. I eat a very low meat diet. There's a whole bunch of different things I've incorporated into my life. And I haven't, you know, at this point, I don't find those sorts of things all that challenging. But this idea of buying and owning fewer, better things did strike me as something that would challenge me because I'm also just kind of maybe naturally thrifty or (laughs) what have you. And so the idea of just spending a lot of money to acquire fairly ordinary goods and then living with them for a long time that felt like a psychological leap for me. And also I wanted to kind of explore what that would feel like. And the, the real trick with these things was that, you know, I, I could buy something like that and I had to use it. So it wasn't something that I would buy and then tuck away and use on special occasions and treat as a, as a sacred object. It was just something that I'd buy and use every day, even though it was expensive. It's funny because you know that you wanted to do it, but it's still tempting to I guess you know that in principle, spend a little bit more might be worth it. If, it. I guess quality is going to cost a little more, but it's really tempting to just say, well, maybe this one will get me by. I mean, that feels like what I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy for the most part to, to get by on what I have or to 
you know, buy things at a thrift store or things like that. And I think those are good choices. I just think not everybody's going to make those choices all the time. And particularly if you were born and raised in a, in a lower consuming society, then, then I think from the get go, the goods you acquired would probably lend themselves towards being higher quality, more durable products. And so I wanted to see what that actually would feel like for me, you know, because I would be much more prone right now to just, I mean, there's a lot of pants in the world. I could just go to a thrift store and pick up a pair of pants for cheap, or I could just go to a, you know, to a, to a mall and buy a relatively inexpensive, reasonably high quality pair of jeans. But, you know, this would be, this was taking it to a different place where, you know, I'm trying to get something that's really, really high quality, but use it as an everyday object, even though, you know, it costs more than I'm used to paying for something like that. I want to hear what happens, but I, I can't help but interject because you're hitting on stuff that makes me think a lot that I don't, I haven't really gotten to explore. And one of the things is with thrift shops, I noticed that there's a couple within a couple blocks from me. There have been times when the line to drop off stuff has been longer than the line to buy stuff. I think that a lot of people think, well, I'll just buy this and I'll take it to good, Goodwill. No problem. Benign is actually helping the world. And probably at one point that was the case when all goods were the kind that you, you've just bought. But I think now it's, I think people, you know, it assuages their feelings of responsibility. Yeah, I think there's, there's that. I think that, uh, well, and also the things that people are buying right now don't last very long anyway, right? So they lose their, they get stained more easily or they pull apart more easily. They split at the seams more easily. They lose their color more easily. So that's part of the reason that the cycle has accelerated, you know, and people will buy them. In some senses, the fact that people are lined up to give them to Goodwill is a good sign because it indicates that even though they're buying these cheap products that aren't very well made anymore, they still feel some sense of responsibility for disposing of them in a responsible way. So they take them to Goodwill. But the person who buys them at Goodwill is also, you know, they're getting a secondhand low-grade product, right? So it's just, as you said, it's a, you know, it's a problem at, at both ends of the equation. And I've noticed that myself, you know, as an occasional thrift store shopper, a lot of the stuff there, I just don't, I don't want to own for any period of time because I don't have any faith that it's, that it's of any quality that's going to last for me, or it's already damaged or older looking than I want or, or those sorts of things, right? I think in the past, yeah, you could go to the thrift store, better quality goods were cycling through there. And that was, um, that would have been a more acceptable choice for more people. But now it's often just a place you go to get people's throwaway clothes, which were designed to be thrown away. So the idea of buying better quality goods is, you know, one way that we might start to reverse that, that trend, or at least to experience what it's like, you know, to live in a world that has better quality products again. Well, speaking now of someone who buys, I mean, I'm looking at stuff I'm wearing now. It's a lot of stuff from C a couple of thrift store things, but also it's, it's hitting me that you were talking about once someone has something to get rid of, better to take it to a thrift store than just put it directly into a landfill. But I don't think when they bought the thing in the first place, I think that they buy it knowing, oh, this is, you know, whatever they buy, they think that they're going to take it to the thrift store. The thrift stores have way more than they can handle. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that the more I think about it, as much as I have liked thrift shops in the past and still shop there, I think it's, it's part of the extraction cycle. It's, it's like, there's a system, it seems to me that there's sustainable systems and unsustainable systems. 
And this is just making an unsustainable system a bit more efficient, but in part driving, supporting the goals of that system and therefore accelerating it. That I think most stuff that goes into a thrift store that people drop off does not end up in a thrift store. There's way more stuff being dropped off than they sell. That means it's either going to a landfill or going to third world or I don't know. I mean, there is some value in that this Goodwill in particular gives jobs to people who might not get jobs otherwise. So they get training and things like that. I see that, but I don't think that that's, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing how things go with you because it might change a big thing in my life. Yeah. It's uh, I think thrift store, I think thrift stores do represent something of a psychological component in the cycle, right? Where, where people can, they don't feel a need to take too much responsibility at the front end when they buy things because they know there's a back end that they feel comfortable with, which is goodwill. So I think it does play into the volume of consumption that happens in that way. And I mean, you're exactly right about what happens to the clothes. At this point, I think the number is still 1% of clothing gets recycled and the rest of it is landfilled or sent to other countries. And often in those other countries, it's, it's either landfilled or it's burned. So not a lot of gain in taking clothes back for for alleged reuse because a small percentage of them is actually reused. And because the life cycle of clothing is so short now, whoever buys it secondhand is going to go through it pretty quickly as well. Yeah, it's a, lot, it's a sober thought because it's, it's so much easier just to say, look, got a front thrift store. Like, they, they can't see this, but I'm like, you know, doing that thing with the hands. Or I'm like, my hands are clean. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to see what it feels like uh, you know, to to live within a fewer, better things economy. And I happened to need a pair of pants. So I thought, well, <laughs> I'll buy a pair of jeans. And, and uh, I mean, I'm buying a product in this case that's not only durable, but also, you know, embodies some of the other values that I would, that I would want from my clothing. And all of those things, interestingly enough, you know, drive the price of the, of the product up. So, that in itself is just you know a, a, a reminder of what should be obvious, but which we often forget, which is that if something's cheap, then it's coming out of the system most likely in ways that we don't necessarily support, like environmental costs, social costs, low wages, all of these you know this whole concatenation of problems that are associated with with the production of goods. To clarify, that would be like the environmental would be. If they produce waste, they're not going to like clean it up. It's going to somehow make it in the environment. If it's social, I guess they're going to underpay or maybe sweat shop labor. Uh, is that about right? Yeah, yeah, those sorts of things. I mean, operating in deregulated environments where you can dump your pollutants into a river, things like that. In other places, you may have to pay for treating that pollution or not be able to use as cheap or toxic of substances in the production of your goods. All of those sorts of things. I mean, in if there are corners being cut in costs, then it's often coming out in ecological and social effects. Getting into what you did, I'm really curious, uh, and, and, but I want to build up a base because you had looked up this company beforehand, if I remember right. Yeah, I'd been tracking them for a little bit, actually. Just I heard about them and found what they were doing interesting, and so I started paying attention to them. What prompted you to do that? And what, I mean, I guess is what we were talking about, but uh, or how'd you find them? How, what did you find out about them? And then what happened when you did business with them? I don't really recall what, how I first encountered them. I mean, I was looking, I was trying to look up companies that were specifically trying to make long lasting goods. So 
You've got companies like Patagonia that's known for doing that. There's a guy named Tom Cridland who famously marketed the, I think it's called the 30-year hoodie. <laughs> so the, you know, a hoodie that's designed to last for, for several decades. I was looking at those sorts of places and I bumped into this, this company called Hyut in Wales. And what they were doing was reviving a former jeans-making factory and uh, they brought it back to life in order to produce jeans within the UK, which was no longer happening at that point. So I, was, I just found that interesting as a local economies type project. Obviously, they're going to pay higher wages in a company like that based in Wales. Then you're going to pay to have people make your clothes in Myanmar or Bangladesh. So there's a whole bunch of interesting things in that. And then they also seem to be paying more than the usual amount of attention to organic fabrics and things like that when they can the you know the environmental costs of dyes and fabric treatments and things like that these are all things that were on their radar how do you know this i guess a web page or was it was there literature that went out did they advertise i just started following what they were doing on they had a newsletter and you know just social media type things just started paying attention to what they were what they were up to and uh and some of their experiments seemed pretty interesting i mean they were trying to do for example, they produced a set of jeans that were dyed with a, a waste product from uh, some kind of a palm tree. So very low environmental impact to produce this gray dye for, for denim. They just seem to be running these, these little small-scale experiments that I thought were interesting. And so when I thought about buying a product, I thought about, I thought about that particular company and went ahead. And went, the one that I bought from them was again maybe more of a local economies t- type focus it's a pair of pants where it's the first as i understand it anyway the first denim to be produced in the uk ever so I, the denim actually the denim fabric actually milled in the uk and then was sent over to this company to be made into jeans so i mean the cotton wasn't grown in the uk i don't think that's possible yet <laughs> and uh but they they did you know they they milled the denim itself and made the jeans and then they actually i can actually show this to you i don't know that i'll I'll describe it in case for for any potential listeners but um so he's showing me the what do you call that the tag the the thing that goes where the belt goes through leather tag at the back oh, so that's well it's, it's a map that shows it shows where the denim mill was and where the factory was a short distance across. Uh-huh. Oh, it's got a little uh, dotted line between so showing, I guess, like that's where the person walked it. The yeah, wheelbarrow full of... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the path that the denim took to the mill. Now, of course, it, it then took a much longer path to get to me in Vancouver. So I ordered it from them and uh, it very, very slowly made its way to me. I think it was over about five weeks or so because... You place the order, they make the jeans. So again, they're not uh, producing massive quantities. They're doing these short runs that they know they're going to sell out. They're not overproducing and then ending up with a bunch of clothes they have to throw out. And then, yeah, and then they they shipped it over to me, which was slow for a variety of reasons. When you ordered, did you talk to them or did you? I didn't. No, I just I just ordered in the in the ordinary in the ordinary modern way online. Okay, so and it took long, longer than you expected, or how long it was supposed to take to, to arrive? Uh, I didn't really know. I knew it was going to take some time, but okay. it did. 
uh, it, took, it took some time. I was, you know, I, I wasn't in any hurry. All right. So now you've gotten them, you've, you've had them around for a few weeks, a couple months. A few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And when I first got them, I just made a deliberate effort to just put them on and wear them continuously. So I'm not wearing them right now, obviously, because I <laughs> just showed you the tag. But yeah, I've been wearing them all the time and just trying to turn them into a normal, a normal thing that I'm going to use that I might spill food on, that I, you know, <laughs> I might walk through the brush in those, whatever, you know. I've already, the, the cuffs have gotten muddy, so. What's the experience? I mean, are they better? Are they worse? If you didn't know, would you, could you tell the difference? I mean, I imagine it would take like a couple of years. Ideally, it takes a decade or so, and you're like, oh, these are starting to show a little wear. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll be quite that long, <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, I do feel like they, I feel like the, they're going to hold their color better. I feel they do feel like they have a heavier weight than uh, than a typical pair of jeans that you might buy at the mall. I'm no expert, but I mean, looking at them, I feel like, yeah, these, these look, they look well-constructed. They have heft. The dye quality looks, looks unusually good. So right now, I mean, I have faith that they're, that they're going to, that they're going to perform as anticipated. And I mean, the idea, of course, with a pair of jeans is that they, you know, they're one of those, the few products that we still celebrate as they get older, right? People really, people really like jeans as they fade and, and take on character. So these presumably should do that and do it well and, and look good for a long time and then look, and then have character for a long time before they finally enter you know, my rag bag. Yeah. When you showed them on the screen, the color looked more rich. It looked like, um, what's, what's the term like more saturated. Yeah. Than... That's my impression too. Yeah. They do. It does seem more, the color seems more saturated. It seems as though it's going to fade less easily in the wash. And the company specifically encourages you not to wash their jeans either. They're, you know, they have this thing, I think it's called the six month club or something like that, where you buy your pair of jeans and try not to wash it for the first six months. I don't think that'll be any real problem for me. I mean, (laughs) I've already taken the turn towards not washing particularly jeans all that often. So So that's what you've done. And it's a little early to say how it'll go. Only time will tell. What about the emotional experience? What was it like starting from when you committed to doing it, then doing the order, waiting for it to come, wearing it, talking about it now? You know, I'm, I'm pretty indifferent to... I'm, I'm not just not really that heavily into material goods. So I wasn't full of anticipation about it. I was just more, more interested in what the experience was going to be like when they got here. That said, they're pretty pleasing, you know, like they, there is something about well-made things that, that is appealing at a deeper level. And so above and beyond, like I say, I mean, I'm no expert, but to my, my eye tells me that this is a better quality product than I'm usually wearing. And, um, and I like the, the feel of that, you know, there's something about, I think we're, we're maybe wired in some way to appreciate well-crafted things and artisanship. I mean, there's something about it that tells a bit more of a human story than products that just seem so obviously mass produced. So that part is, you know, maybe a pleasant surprised that I hadn't anticipated. I hadn't anticipated that I would enjoy <laughs> having this higher quality thing as much as I, as I do. And, uh, and then I guess I just had to adapt to the idea of actually using it rather than, than keeping it special because occasionally in the past I have paid more for something, but then I've, 
very rarely used it because it felt kind of precious to me. So this time I had to make it quotidian right away. And so that's why I just like immediately just said, well, I'll just wear it every day for, for two or three weeks. And, and I did that. So at this point that worked. I mean, that, that just made it feel like, well, that's, that's that pair of pants. I can just put them on any time. I broke through the sound barrier of thrift (laughs) and, uh, and I'll just, uh, I'll just wear them. What will be really interesting though, is it's still just a pair of pants. There's still fabric, right? I mean, how long is it really going to last? Like I said, I don't, I don't think it will last 10 years of hard wear, right? It'll last a few, maybe at best. And so by that point, will I have forgotten what they cost and not care? Or will I feel like, well, that wasn't that great a deal? Or I don't know. It's, uh, it's interesting how reluctant we are to, to pay more, you know, <laughs> a little bit more for things that we, that to get things that embody more of our values and that are higher quality and a greater pleasure to use and a great, greater pleasure to, you know, to, to look at that age in a way that's more, you know, the age gracefully. It's curious how reluctant most of us are to actually acquire those kinds of products. Most of us don't do it very often. It sounds like when you talk about your experience of it, money didn't come in. You mentioned it briefly of in how we don't, we think about it when we're buying it. It feels to me like, yes, you paid for it at that time. Probably not. I mean, there's some people out there who can't afford even a pair of jeans, but for people who can afford a gym membership or cable TV subscriptions, probably a pair of jeans is not that much. And I'm sure people will run through their head and say like per wearing, it's going to be 0.001% of, you know, cents. And I remember early on when I was first starting to coach and I would get paid, you know, I had to figure out how much I would get paid. And my mom said, Josh, people always remember the experience. They don't remember what they paid for it. If you give them a quality product, that stuff fades or a service. And that's been the case. It certainly is the case for me when I'm doing this writing workshop and it's expensive. It's really worth it. <laughs> I mean, I do think about the money, but I'm also thinking this is putting on a whole different trajectory. And I wish I'd done it earlier. An interesting aspect of it, I think, is that the one area where we do spend extra money is on branding, right? So the most useless thing that you can add to a product is the thing that most of us are most most prepared to pay more for. So, I mean, you can easily go out there and pick up a branded t-shirt that costs 10 times as much as the cheapest t-shirt on the market, but in terms of quality and durability of the materials is not is not that dramatically different, right? It just happens to have the particular brand. That's the kind of extra that we've been willing to pay for over the last, you know, several decades. And yet we're highly reluctant still to just pay that extra for higher wages for the people who make the products or better environmental protections, or even for a higher quality product for ourselves. I find that really interesting, you know, that there are certain kinds of premiums we are willing to pay right now and others that we're not. And it's, you know, really powerfully cultural and driven by advertising and, you know, all the usual things. Yeah. It's hard for me not to think of the images from, uh, story of plastic and where the clothing goes after we use it. And there's just piles and piles and it looks, it's just gets covered with mud and doesn't go away for what, a thousand years. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, it's working its way into the food chain and our bloodstreams and wildlife bloodstreams. 
And I would guess that where you've bought your jeans from, this none of their stuff is. I would guess. I guess you'd have to check on this. Is is stuff is not going there, or and I guess they're probably not using stuff that would go there if it's if it's all natural fibers. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I recall at one point I was kind of I developed a little bit of cynicism about them because they they seem to be selling out run after run, and I was like, well, you know, I mean, they're still a company. They they're marketing their goods and they want people to buy them, but I was noticing that they'd have run after run of these jeans that would come out and then they'd all sell out. And I was like, there just can't be that many people out there, you know, needing to buy these durable products and people are probably buying them as a premium, you know, brand type product. And I think that's probably true to some extent, but then I received a newsletter from them that said, I mean, this was after several years in operation that they had sold a total of 10,000 pairs of pants. And I was like, okay, you know, that's not, that's not a lot for a clothing company. That's small-scale production. I don't think a lot of those pairs of pants, that's, there's very little waste, obviously, if you're selling at that low of quantities. And, and yeah, I think most of those pairs of pants are sold to somebody who owns them and uses them and, and will dispose of them at, you know, towards the end of, of their lifetimes, their product lifetimes. I want to go back a second when I asked you about the emotions that you've, what that journey was like. And at, at first, what I heard if I can put names to, maybe it was something different than what I heard, but satisfaction, fulfillment. Then it got a little deeper because you were talking about what it felt like in your, or maybe more nuanced, what it felt like against your skin or in your hands. That, like it started being something like how someone might talk about a pet or um, I, I don't mean to say something living, but the level of, of emotional intensity or magnitude seemed greater than I expected all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, that's probably because I'm really paying attention to it at one level. But at another, I think that's exactly it, is that the kind of, I mean, there's this contradictory idea around material goods that that some people who've thought hard about this have raised, which is that we don't need to be less attached to material goods. We need to be more attached to them, right, in order to have a lower consuming society, because we are going to have goods, most of us. So what we want to have if we're going to have them, is high-quality goods that we care about, that we live with for a long time, that are built to, to last through that kind of relationship. And that, I guess, is, is the kind of emotional experience that I was paying attention to, was like, do, am I responding to this product in a way that, that suggests that you know, I, I'll be attached to it? You know, I, I'll admire it. I'll like it as a part of my life. And I won't want to get rid of it after 10 wears, like a lot of clothing today. I'm going to want to live with it and uh, live with the product and watch it change and, and go through its product aging and eventually its product death. And I guess in a sense, it is somewhat like a, like a pet in that way. The kind of relationship people often have with their cars, right? Like if they keep cars for a long time, after 20 years with the same car, it is, I think for a lot of people, very near to something for that long it's had you've had all these experiences with it you've lived with it uh, you have all these memories associated with it and you feel like it's done good by you and so when it comes time to take it to the knackering yard you feel you feel something for it i feel like part of this this was partly an experiment for you to try something that you've talked about that you've researched and did i read that right and if so is this putting on a on a new track are you thinking about things differently are you like, do you expect to do more with this? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, 
I think there's two kinds of products. Well, I think there's variable kinds of relationships that I'll have with products based on my my research into consumption and what a lower consuming society might look like. And I think that there there are, are products that you do just want to kind of breeze in and out of your life sometimes. And um, there just shouldn't be very many of those. And then other products, I guess it's a, a question of products having an appropriate lifespan for what I would want from the product, right? For most of the things I buy, I would like them to have a long lifespan, most of the things. And then there'd be occasional things that, um, that I might want to just drift through my life very briefly. You know, maybe one day I do want to buy, uh, you know, a few balloons for a visiting nephew or something, right? I'm not going to expect those balloons to last 20 years. We're going to have a you know, a water fight with them or something, right? That's fine. But I don't want, um, I don't think most of the products and certainly not the core products in my life should be like that. The core products should be things that, that I acquire possibly even secondhand, but that will still endure through, through decades. I'm trying to think of like what, what I have like that. Certainly like my Vitamix blender. I got it probably because my mom's, my mom bought one in, I think the seventies and after, I don't know, 40 years, some screw went out and I called the company up and they're, and they're like, yeah, we can, if you send that in, we'll give you a big discount on a new one. We can keep the old one, but the new ones are a lot better. Mm-hmm. So now I got this one, that thing's a tank. <laughs> you know, I feel like I could put a brick in the blender and it would, <laughs> it would work. I have this knife. I've been thinking about getting a seriously really good knife because I cook so much now. The one I have is pretty good. It doesn't keep itself sharp that much, that that long. I bought a couple of pairs of jeans that were actually at a, this is years ago, they were at um, one of those places that sells like odd lots. Mm-hmm. The company, I looked it up afterward, Nudie Jeans. I don't know if you know, they're, I think from Sweden. Yeah. And now they opened up a shop in New York and I took my jeans there and they, they patched them up. They're like, no questions asked. They're like, yeah, of course, these are our jeans. So we fix them. And here you go. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of uh, products and that's the kind of companies that I think we want. I think, and I think right now those things are accessible. It's just that they are like, there, there are more and more of them. There are more and more places that you can buy higher quality goods from, but right now it's definitely a premium niche, right? It's, you have to have the money to, um, to buy those things because the system is set up and so we don't have a system that's designed to favor those t- types of companies. We have a system that's designed to favor companies that produce at volume in the cheapest possible manner. And so, you know, we need to figure out some way to make that kind of a transition at the system level as well, you know, so that more people can buy, can buy good quality goods because there are, there certainly are people who just on a day-to-day level, their incomes will not permit them to, to front a hundred bucks for a really well-made sweatshirt when they can go to Walmart and buy one for eight, you know, the choice at a, um, paycheck to paycheck level is going to be obvious for a lot of people on that, on that front. Yeah. When we're talking at a systems level though, I also have to think that the cause and effect probably goes the other way. Okay. Right now during the pandemic, there's a lot more, uh, how do I put it? People doing drugs in, in Washington Square Park. And there's a lot of little airplane sized bottle alcohol things around probably a dollar each. I don't know, but per sip is going to be way more expensive than a bottle of, you know, the full-size bottle. There's on, on the story of plastic, they were saying how in, in Europe, they sell the product in a big container 
And in Asia, they sell it in little sachets. And they were talking about the, the environmental impact of the sachets, but also keep them hooked, give them these little bits and charge them higher margins, but lower total, total dollar amount per each item. And so like one of my big things is I'm, uh, people say, oh, you can go to shop farmer's markets to get the food that you get. I'm like, well, I want farmer's markets in the food deserts too. When I hear someone say, we should, Walmart is the biggest purveyor, I think now in America of, of organic foods. So people say that they want, they should get, they want Walmart in the Bronx. I'm like, Walmart knows how to extract value from communities better than anyone. They're not doing anyone any favors. McDonald's is not saving people time. I think it's creating a world in which, in which you have to go fast. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and yet there's still this kind of barrier that's produced. I mean, like some of these things are quite complicated. For example, as I started to research clothing and durability and so on, one of the things that I started to hear from people working in fashion was that besides novelty, like the the constant change of the look of fashion, more recently, there's been this trend towards just newness, meaning clothing that looks brand new. Because clothing is so cheap now, it's easier for people, if they have the income to do it, to always look like they're wearing brand new goods. And that has, that's what's started to happen, particularly in big urban centers. Like Now that I've mentioned this to you, if you haven't noticed it already, you certainly will. Because as soon as somebody put that in my head and I went around the city, I was like, yeah, everybody always looks like they're in like new stuff, new clothes, new shoes. And the people who have the income to do that then create cultural pressure on people who don't have the income to do it to still look that way. So, I mean, the only way that you can still look like you're wearing new clothes all the time if you have a lower income is just to buy the cheapest, cheapest stuff. So then you are buying the $15 Walmart dress shirt to go to work, and it's not going to give you value over time. You're going to, you know, it's going to lose color after three washes or whatever, or start to pull apart at the seams. But that's what you can pay for. That's what you can fit into your budget. So that's what you do. You know, there's these, these really complex kind of cause and effect things that play out feedback loops and cultural trickle downs and trickle ups. And it's complicated stuff for sure. But I think we just need to pay a little bit more attention to where we want to go as a culture. And I really don't think there are very many people out there who want lower and lower quality products. That I don't think there's too many people who want to follow the trend we're on now towards shorter lifespans for everything we're buying. Uh, I think most of us are pretty tired of that and wanting to take a turn back the other direction. And not everybody has to be you know, buying pairs of jeans that are going to last 15 years. They could be buying pairs of jeans that are going to last two years instead of five months. You know, That's still an improvement. And I'm glad you mentioned the system's effect because I mean, that's what this podcast is about. Is one of the things... Am I going to change the system all by myself? Probably not. But one of the main things I think that influences people's role models, if you don't know people who are doing these things, then you know you just figure, oh, I'll take the disposable. I mean, that's what everyone else is doing. So hopefully your next book will be another big bestseller and it'll be like a big, big role model. And people say, I want to buy jeans like, he, like him. But at least, <laughs> and also just that it's not, it was an experiment that could have gone the other way, but I'm hearing satisfaction. I mean, it's your money. You, you don't have to keep doing this. But if you, if you do, it tells me that you're getting something out of it. And that's what people can, yeah. if there's anything I want to change more than anything else, it's that people think what I do doesn't matter and that it's going to be a burden and a chore. If people just think, if people get, you know, systemic change begins with individual transformation, personal transformation. And when you change, everyone around you is waiting. 
you know, as you said, people don't want to buy junk. They don't want to buy polluting stuff. They don't want to feel like, oh, is this, am I doing the right thing or not? They, they want to feel confident. They want to know and they want to enjoy what they get. They want to focus more on the values of life rather than like, I don't think people come back from shopping all the time being like, great, another shopping trip. That was a great, great shopping trip. They probably want to spend time with family and doing cool projects and things like that. I mean, there are going to be some very fashionable people who maybe do stuff like that. And as long as people think it's, man, I did, I did an episode with my mom and she's like, Josh, I just don't have the passion for not flying that you do. I'm like, I don't have a passion for not flying. I have a passion for <laughs> the life that comes from it. And she said, well, it's good that people like you and Greta are out there who are like taking one for the team. I forget how she put it. I'm like, I'm not sacrificing anything. Do you really believe? And my own mom was like, yeah, I really don't think that you enjoy it as much, Josh. I'm like, how can you, you think of, like, I'm not trying to trick people into this. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I want to, that's one of the reasons I asked all these questions. Cause I didn't want, I don't want people thinking, you know, McKinnon's on and he's just going to say like, oh yeah, look at me. I'm so great. And you should be like me. And then going back and being like, I overpaid for these jeans. If that was the case, <laughs> I'd rather that came out too. But if it's really, I thought about this, I went back and forth. It's a meaningful decision. And I was curious how it'd work out. It could have gone anyway. And it's not easy at first, but I mean, in my case, a lot of the switches that I've made certainly is to say cooking from scratch. I had no idea what I was doing. And, oh man, I got to brag. <laughs> Earlier today was the, um, the workshop, the writing workshop. And there's a time when she talks to us and it's on Zoom. And I thought, you know what? I got all these apples that um, they were, I got a bunch of free apples, slightly bruised. And I've been meaning to make my next round of vinegar. So I just put my Zoom on um, you know, not my video showing and I'm just start chopping apples and I'm, and I made a whole thing of vinegar. I mean, I have to, and actually my old vinegar has, they call it vinegar mother, but a SCOBY and other mm-hmm. things, the self-contained organisms of, I don't know, the, the stuff that processes the sugars into acetic acid or first into alcohol, then acetic acid. I got a serious thing growing in, in there of like this stuff growing. I was like, I had no idea it was going to happen because people do this with um, kombucha. I'm not in kombucha. It seems too like trendy to me. Vinegar has been around forever. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I, I want to make vinegar. But then this other story. Okay. So I got to say why I got all this free food. Cause I know a couple stores around me when they get rid of on Friday evenings, when they get rid of this, like uh, the bread that's at the end of its due date. So I got all this free bread from them too. And it started getting <laughs> um, past its prime. So I look up fermenting bread and there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of this stuff called kvass, which I'd never heard of, yeah. but I made it once a while ago. It's basically just put Really, it's just putting bread in, in water and letting it ferment. And the last batch is, I mean, the first time I did it was like, okay. And the next batch was like, okay, this batch was incredible. I mean, it's like incredible. I can't believe how good this stuff tastes. <laughs> I had no idea that I could just take bread that was stale and starting to get mold on it and just turn it into this incredibly tasty stuff. And it's still bubbling. Mm-hmm. I haven't made kvass before. I've, I have heard of it, but I haven't actually tried to make it. I usually... Managed to get through all my bread by chopping it up into and making croutons. <laughs> I got like five or 10 loaves one time. And yeah, that would be a lot of croutons. <laughs> and I guess what I'm getting across is, uh, hey, mom, it tastes really good. <laughs> I'm not faking this. Yeah. No, that's the thing. I mean, I, I think there are different kinds of satisfactions that come from it. I think there are sincere pleasures for people who are really into 
fast fashion right now, for example, I think that they they sincerely, some of them, sincerely enjoy the speed at which the trends change and kind of the excitement of keeping up with those and the, just the sheer volume of clothes that you can afford with your money compared to 25 years ago, allowing you to kind of creatively express yourself through your clothing all the time. And You know, I'm not somebody who sneers at the idea that there is pleasure to be had in the system as we have it. I think there is, but I think there's deeper satisfactions to be had from, you know, from a different approach to it. I guess sticking with fashion as a way of thinking about it. I mean, having fewer clothes that you, you know, that you choose, you're kind of more invested in forming an identity around these things because you're going to keep them longer. And then appreciating the qualities of of things as they age. You know, it's a different uh, it's a different way of thinking about it, but it's that has its pleasures too. And certainly there are pleasures in yeah, having and using things that are well made and that that you know somebody put some soul into as they were as they were creating it. It's a different it's a different kind of enjoyment, but it's still enjoyment unquestionably. Yeah, I, when you put it that way it reminds me of one of the ways I put it is uh when I was in college I would buy whatever beer to get drunk. Mm-hmm. Now I drink a nice scotch. The volume of alcohol that I have is much less. The net value and meaning and purpose to my life is much greater. Yeah. Could I, as a college kid, have gotten there? I don't know. I mean, hopefully the people, if they're listening to this podcast, then you're going to be prone to try these experiments. And hopefully people are listening and saying, oh, I'll give that, I'll give that a shot too. Yeah, it kind of depends where you're coming from, right? I mean, I think as a as a young guy, I kind of had the same priorities as you. What I, what was important to me in the experience was the drunk part, <laughs> and so <laughs> buying a volume, buying a volume of a product was, you know, I didn't care too much about the the quality of it. But I have, I have to say that did change fairly quickly for me. You know, I did, I did pretty quickly start to appreciate there are better and worse things to, that I can get drunk on, and uh, and I'd rather get drunk on the higher quality ones, and then, and then over time that switched far to just the product itself you know um, the enjoyment of the the product itself but i don't think it's entirely age related in any way i mean i think that as a young guy i certainly could have appreciated high quality goods i would have had very few of them because i wouldn't have had that much money to spend on them but i think that would have been fine for me at that time when i was younger i just approached it by not having that many products anyway so having better ones would have been more satisfying at any age it's hard for me to think back to college that far. I just don't think I would have. Well, at that time, I was about to say, I, I, I don't think I thought of what's the end life of some product that I bought. Or, you know, I guess I'd think if there was a sweatshop, I guess I would not buy stuff that was um, doing business with South Africa during apartheid. I remember protesting some things when the U.S. was involved in Central America. It was, I mean, it was more overtly involved in Central America. So I would try to influence that. But I guess we didn't have the pollution. Uh, I don't know. Well, we certainly didn't have the plastic pollution that we do today. So I didn't think about that end life. I get we were pollute, creating chemical. I, I'm in the middle of a book on the forever chemicals. And so DuPont was making those in that time. But I didn't know about it. I mean, certainly when I think about this pair of genes again, it's like the production of these genes. I know that I don't recall the details of where they acquired the cotton, but I know that they were trying to get cotton from as close to the UK as they can. They were paying attention. 
to those those aspects of the environment and society in all the way through the the product chain right and it produced jobs in England presumably at this denim mill that would you know pay people living wages and you'd have the same situation where the denim was turned into was turned into pairs of jeans in Wales when I think about my relationship to that product chain, I definitely feel a lot better about it, right? I mean, and uh, if that, you know, it makes sense to me that I would pay more for that, you know, to have a relationship with a slower, higher quality product chain. That just makes sense to me. There's no part of that aspect to it that I, you know, that makes me feel like I'm getting financially cheated on the price chipped yeah <laughs> it's it's maybe more you know maybe what i haven't really thought about is i i mean i don't have any idea to what extent this pair of jeans i bought to what extent i am just paying for a brand mm-hmm. at this point right i mean most likely i am and it's probably significant and that part of it i would be less enthusiastic about but overall this feels like a better place to be than knowing that i just bought something that uh, I don't know anything about the product chain, but I can assume that it's that it's pretty pretty terrible. That wages all the way down the line are as low as the companies can make them. That environmental corners are being cut as aggressively as they can be, while maintaining some kind of public relations, you know, some kind of acceptable public relations position. I mean, having a relationship with that kind of product chain is pretty is pretty revolting to me. So in that sense, it's good. I mean, it's making me realize that there was actually an experiment that I didn't think of as an experiment a number of years ago where I I got really fed up with buying sweaters that like pilled up and fell apart and things like that. Because up to that point in my life, I'd really only been exposed to good old sweaters, um, some of which were like handed down to me. And so I went out and paid more I paid I think three hundred dollars or something like that for a sweater because I thought I just want a good, I just want one like the other ones I've had that will last forever and it didn't it didn't last long at all it was in fact really terrible it was about five months in it was so pilled up that you you know it was basically for keeping warm around the house and that's it and then I was like I just paid for the brand that was the lesson on that one was realizing that that paying more didn't actually necessarily translate into quality anymore. It could just translate into brand power. So this time I didn't make that mistake. You know, I learned that lesson years ago and this time paid attention to where I was going to drop some extra dollars on a pair of jeans and, and the outcome is much more satisfying. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm torn between, there's, there's a last question I'd like to ask, and there's something that you might also make me think, of. I'm going to share a story also on my end of, of what you make me think of, is something that's going on with me. So I belong to a CSA where every week I go and pick up my vegetable share uh, every other week in the winter. And 
they, okay, because of COVID, I'll accept that they got to deliver it in a box that, now I bring it back there and I leave the box. I want them to take it back and reuse it, but they're recycling it. They're also putting stuff into plastic bags. So the first two weeks or the first two times that I went, I was like, oh, plastic bags, well, whatever. And actually when I was there, I took something that was in like a plastic case and gave that to someone else and said, you take it. I don't want this because it's too much waste. This last time I went, I was like, I I didn't really think it through, but it it just felt like I don't want this stuff. I don't want to take responsibility for this. And the volunteer coordinator was like, well, why don't you take the greens? I'll take the bag. I got a dog. I got to use bags all the time to pick up the dog poop anyway. I was like, that's just, that's not really taking responsibility. And I just went with my gut and didn't take it and said, just take, you take the greens also, take the bag. And they said, call the farm and, or email us and we'll check with the farm. So I, I emailed them and said, actually I, that night I was like, yeah, plastic, oh, too much plastic. And the next morning I woke up and I was like, wait, wait, first I, I, I was like, let me add a little postscript. I love the vegetables. I love this thing. I love the community. I love all this stuff. I feel great gratitude. The stuff tastes so good. I can't buy stuff from other places. It doesn't taste as good. And then they wrote back and they're like, we've been trying to figure this out and we need a customer to work with. Will you get on a call with us? Actually, that's later tonight for me and help us figure this out because we don't know. And, I, and then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really getting called in on this. I don't know their, their systems. I don't know how their operations work. Maybe my ideas, I just want to say, use me as a guinea pig. Just throw the vegetables in. Don't put the plastic bags. If it gets wilty, I'm not going to complain. It'll be an experiment. Maybe it'll work fine. You don't have to use that stuff. So I don't know if it's going to work out well or not. Maybe I'll end up thinking, well, I, I, maybe I'll just take the plastic. I doubt it because each time that's like a month worth of plastic because I would package stuff. But here's the big outcome. It seemed like I was being annoying at the time. I would have probably seen me as annoying at the time, although not really annoying, but because the people I was talking to ended up getting free vegetables <laughs> from me. <laughs> but it always results in at least one of the three, joy, community, or connection. And I haven't yet hit the joy on this one yet, but the community and connection have increased. Mm-hmm. I'm getting to know the farmers. I'm getting to know the, the intermediates, the, the CSA people in a way that I think is going to work out. And I might be, I'd like to think that I'll end up being part of a solution that everybody likes. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, engaging with the processes that bring us things is, uh, is satisfying, I think, right? It's, uh, if, particularly if those systems, anytime we engage with the systems that bring us stuff, or services, I think it's satisfying actually, because even if you're ignored, it makes you, it gives you the opportunity to say, well, then I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something else. You know, this, this company ignores me or sends me greenwashing materials. I'm just going to go, I'm not going to buy from them anymore. That's still satis- That's still a satisfying outcome, but much more satisfying, of course, if you, uh, if you have a positive interaction, like the one you've described and, and, um, end up helping move the dial a little bit. That's, I don't know if it's joy, but it's got to feel, it's got to feel like something good. Gratifying. Yeah. Gratifying. Did this affect your relationships in any way? Did it, did it change your relationships with people around you or with them or this purchase you mean? Yeah. Or the, looking at as a greater experiment. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of people around me right now. So (laughs) I, I wouldn't be able to say that at this point. I mean, I think that over time though, these kinds of choices will definitely, it will definitely in the same way that food has, I mean, like you, I, you know, I shop mainly at markets at this point and, uh, and I've been doing so for a long time at the, you know, been doing so since the 100 mile diet experiment, which was back in 2005. So yeah, I mean, I really know 
I really know where my food's coming from and I know who produces it. And if I go to the market, I've, you know, there's people that I've been talking to off and on for, for many years. And, um, and that's, those are part, when people say like, aren't you tempted to just go back to the global supermarket? I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) you know, I have all these connections and, and care about the landscape and, you know, what's going on in the climate and the weather and the seasons and all these relationships with all kinds of different aspects of life. I wouldn't want to give up any of those. And I think that that would probably be the case as well. If I start moving into, you know, just surrounding myself with higher quality goods, I'm going to, I'm going to know people who repair them. I'm going to take my broomstick back and get new broom corn put on it by a broom maker. You know, every time I wear the thing down, the things are going to, people would notice over time. I think that if someone came over to stay they and, you know, I gave them, as you said, like a cooking knife or something, they'd realize, wow, this thing's like old and you've been using this so long that it's partially worn into the shape of your hand. I think people will respond to those sorts of, those sorts of changes over time. Right? I really want to keep going. I, I'd like to leave it with a, give you an open invitation to come back and share either if things involve with the genes if you start doing it in other places, when your book comes out? My guess is when the book comes out in May, these are the kinds of things that people are going to want to talk to me about. So, I mean, a few people have read the book at this point, copy editors and editors and things like that. And uh, this actually seems to be one of the areas where people are really responding because they're thinking about products that they've had. They're responding to this idea of like caring more for our goods rather rather than just saying, I'm not going to be materialist. I'm not going to own anything, right? They're responding more to this idea of like, I'm not going to be materialist. I'm going to have an even deeper relationship with my material goods rather than a transient ephemeral relationship with them, a shallow relationship with them. And, uh, and they're thinking of products that they've had or that have been in their families and things like that and, and responding with that feeling that they, they would like more of that in their lives. Is that a cool place to leave it with the book? Is there anything more to say? Because it'll, it's a little bit till May and hopefully you'll be back around then. But anything else to tease readers with, or listeners with about reading it to whet their appetites? <laughs> well, I guess I can say at this point that the book is in book catalogs online. So people can start to get a sense of it for themselves if they want to. It's called The Day the World Stops Shopping. And uh, it's online. People can read up a little bit if they choose to. Publishers in the UK, Canada, and the United States all have all of materials up online about it. So, okay. And if they haven't read the Once in Future, I always say it wrong. The Once in Future World, but sometimes I say Once in Future Earth. Mm. But I can highly, highly recommend that as I quoted, oh, nearly quoted it last time. So I'm <laughs> going to it this time. <laughs> I have not read Hundred Mile Diet. I've just lived it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the Hundred Mile Diet is still finding readers much to my surprise actually <laughs> so uh, my delight and surprise i should say because it is always yeah it's always it's really interesting that people can pick up a book that's you know now about 15 years old and and it still connects in the same way that it did at that time there's still people out there who are looking at their plate and going i don't even know where any of this stuff cam- comes from and then they read the 100 mile diet because of that feeling um, because they have this hunger to reconnect with where their food is coming from. There's still a lot of people out there waiting to have that experience. It's, it's really interesting. 
Very interesting. It pains me to wrap it up for this time, but hopefully, hopefully we'll be back to share more. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. After this episode, I noticed the reading glasses that I bought most recently and was wearing during this conversation, they weren't the highest quality. I found the receipt, went back to the store the next morning, and traded them for the higher quality ones. The construction of the cheaper ones, it just didn't feel secure. The optics looked wavy. I figured, well, I can get by. I could say now, the last place I want to save money is on my eyes. But until I used the old ones a bit, I didn't really know. Now with the new ones, I'm not going back. The new ones cost four times more, but that's only $30 extra for what I'll use for years. I don't know, maybe I could get them cheaper somewhere else. But I know the store where I bought them from and I was forming a relationship with the people there. They actually were very helpful. We throw stuff out because we don't value it. New York City streets and the streets of every American city and in my experience, the countryside as well, are covered with trash. Not just litter, which is mostly packaging, but people's garbage, the stuff that their household accumulates, the stuff that the trash trucks pick up. It's supposed to be there in the sense of our municipalities clean this stuff up, but the volume and weight is 10, maybe a hundred times more than when I was a kid. Why are we buying so much stuff we don't value? If we valued it, we wouldn't throw it away. What would happen if we didn't buy stuff we don't value? I know you want to point out there are people who can't afford more, but what about you? How much do you give to thrift stores thinking you're helping when actually you're contributing, systemically speaking, to a throwaway culture? How would your life change if you didn't buy anything disposable for a week? a month, a year? Is it worth giving it a shot? It might be four times more, amounting to $100. I'm guessing that many people listening to this podcast could do that experiment and find out. I'm very curious to find out because I haven't really been doing it. JB got me thinking about it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.